0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. Man-made disasters are the worst. We're going to spend some time talking about the dam collapse in Laos. It's displaced thousands of families there, and as the water moved downstream, more in Cambodia. Dam building is notoriously rough on its human neighbors and the environment, and there's been a lot of dam building on the Mekong River. China's built dams, the Cambodians have plans for the biggest dam ever on the river, and Laos has plans for nine dams on the main Mekong River and hundreds more on its tributaries. With me is Ian Baird. He is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's an expert on Laos and the impact of dams. He is in Thailand right now. Thanks for joining us.
1: No problem. Glad to join you.
0: Can you tell us a little about the dam in question here in Laos and what happened at its collapse and how does it really fit in with the other projects that Laos has going here?
1: So uh, the sapien Saintem noi Dam, which is the one in question, um, is a very large dam. It's... Uh, being constructed. It's about 90% complete, and uh, it's at a cost of about a billion dollars. Um, it's being constructed by uh, a large uh, a Korean, South Korean company um, together with a Thai company, and then the Lao government has a small share in it as well. It's a very complex project because it actually diverts one river into another river, and then it also has six what they call saddle dams, which help to keep the water within a very large reservoir up on the Bullivant Plateau, which is a, a higher area um, in Jumpasac province. But the river where that has been especially impacted by the, the collapse of one of the saddle dams is the Sapien River. Which runs down into the Sagong River just before it enters into Cambodia. So that's why uh, the biggest impacts, of course, have been on the Lao side when the Saddle Dam broke and a very large amount of water flushed into the into the river. But then it's also gone into the Sagong River and also caused flooding downstream in uh, Siem Pang District of uh, Stung Treng Province as well. So this is a, a major. Uh, collapse of a dam with a very large reservoir and the water has flushed down very quickly and inundated a very large area and a large number of villages and uh, we're still not sure exactly how many people have died but uh, there are uh, you know well over 100 that are still missing and uh, we know there are 26 people who have been killed. But the number is probably much higher.
0: Can you tell us a little about these villages and people? Uh, A lot of times when dam building occurs, people are displaced. The nature of their life changes if they're dependent upon the river. Uh, Is this what's been happening with these villages?
1: Well, there are other villages that actually have been displaced by the reservoir of the dam um they're not the ones have be, that have been particularly impacted by this particular uh saddle dam collapse but they have but there are other communities that have been terribly impacted by resettlement they've received very low compensation for Uh, being moved, and uh, it's really disrupted their lives. The people that are actually downstream along the Sapien River who have been especially impacted by the collapse of the dam, uh, some of those villages are ethnically Lao. Some of them are indigenous peoples from the uh, Dak ethnic group. And uh, these people live in very remote areas near the river, and they rely heavily on natural resources for their livelihoods. fishing and they collect forest products and they do some agriculture as well they're basically sort of living in uh semi-subsistence economies um there are no shops or places to buy food in these areas so people generally find their own food through fishing and uh, other types of uh, forest collection activities and um Actually, even before the dam collapsed, these villages were already being heavily impacted because the Sapien River has actually been diverted into the reservoir uh, as part of the construction of the dam. And so the river has been dewatered downstream during the dry season. And so people that used to fish in that river and fish is the main source of animal protein that the people consume, you know, has been really wiped out. The fishery has been wiped out because of that. And then, of course, in the rainy season now, they've been inundated with a huge amount of water because of the dam collapse. And these people are, you know, highly dependent on natural resources. Almost all their livestock has been, you know, killed by the dam collapse and uh this is you know some people have been trying to claim that you know this is a a natural disaster it's really not it's a human caused disaster due to bad management and possibly bad construction of the dam project itself and uh basically uh they didn't release water earlier when they should have there was heavy rains which should be expected for this time of the year and then one of the saddle dams uh, became structurally uh Compromised, and uh, they knew about that, but they weren't able to resolve the problem or provide information to the people downstream in time. And basically, when the water uh, came out of the dam, uh, people downstream didn't even know it was coming, and it caught them totally off guard. And uh, that's why you know there's been it's been such a disaster.
0: I'm talking with Ian Baird. He's an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an expert on Laos and the impact of dams. And we're talking about the recent dam collapse in Laos. It sounds like this dam and these dams, have, I mean, have had a bad impact on people upstream of the dam where the reservoirs are and now a catastrophic effect on these people downstream. Um, Uh, You mentioned it's a billion-dollar project and there are so many dams going into the uh, Mekong River area. Um, Is there any chance that the government and the players involved would um, uh, rethink the way they're doing this?
1: Well, I mean, it's a bit early to tell uh, how their policy might be altered by this catastrophic event, but I certainly think that uh, they should reconsider the way they've been doing things because clearly, uh, you know, there's a lot of safety issues and there's also a lot of ecological and social impacts being caused by these dams and people are not receiving adequate compensation. And all the electricity they're producing is actually for export to to thailand and to vietnam and so it's not that uh these dams are actually being used to produce energy for the people you know in the country
0: the government in laos though has been arguing that these dams are their way to development and this is the only way forward they're going to sell what they've got and it's energy from this river that's the and they've been going against popular opinion and things to 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 put these things in
1: yeah, well, I mean, it's true that they are gaining some foreign exchange, uh, significant revenues from these projects, but the problem is, is that the people that live downstream and upstream, you know, in the reservoir areas of these projects, are not, you know, receiving adequate compensation, not even close to it. The the, the communities downstream prior to this catastrophic event had not received any compensation for you know very heavy impacts on their livelihoods because they were actually considered to be outside of the project area even though they were being heavily impacted so if these dams are being built with the idea that there needs to be poverty reduction in Laos you would think that the first thing they would do would be to provide you know very heavy compensation for those people that are being impacted so that they wouldn't be negatively affected you know, by the projects, but that's not actually happening. So on the one hand, the government's gaining revenues, but on the other hand, the local people are being impacted. And then there's also impacts on future generations because the ecological impacts of these projects are, you know, very serious and, you know, potentially irreversible. And so we're looking at, you know, serious impacts down the road. Um, so I'm not denying that they're gaining some revenue from this project, but there are also very serious social and environmental impacts that are not being adequately dealt with.
0: Who is arguing for the environment and for the people in these circumstances? Because it seems like the momentum uh, is all on the development side, and China has been involved in a lot of dam building, and, and they do it in Cambodia. There are all sorts of players in Laos, the South Koreans. There's just a lot of private firms that are driving uh the the development of this whole river basin
1: well it's true that most of the projects being developed are what they call build operate and transfer projects so that means that there are private companies that gain concessions from the lao government to build these dams they own the dams and they sell the energy and gain revenue from that and then after a certain number of years 20 or 30 years then the dams are handed over to the lao government now um in terms of who is arguing, you know, against them, I mean, one of the big problems in Laos is that, you know, it is uh, a, a one-party state, and it's not possible for local people who may be concerned about these projects to voice their concerns because that kind of uh, free speech is not allowed, and so uh, they're scared to say much. So the people that are, you know, concerned about these projects really have a hard time saying much within Laos itself. But there are certainly people outside of the country and people that know the country very well who are very concerned and uh, have been voicing their concerns, but it's very hard for people inside the country to say anything.
0: I'm talking with Ian Baird. He's an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an expert on Laos and the impact of dams, and we're talking about the recent dam collapse in Laos. What do you expect will happen with the people who have been displaced by this uh, disaster?
1: Well, it's a bit unclear at this point. My, uh, my, you know, these people have lived in these areas for a very long time, so I suspect that when the water levels go down, they will try to move back to the places that they previously lived, and uh, they're probably going to be pretty scared about, you know, potentially having future. Uh, you know, bursts bursting of, of, of dams, uh, you know, water coming down on them. But I don't expect that they're gonna be easily able to move anywhere else because uh, you know, they're 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 very poor people and you know, they don't have resources, they don't have savings, you know, they don't have bank accounts, you know. They they they, they, they the land that they own and farm is in that area. They don't own any other land anywhere else. So they will probably be, you know, returning to those places, but I'm sure they won't be sleeping very, very easily after this happens. But it's unclear exactly how long it'll take before they'll be able to move back because uh, the water, you know, is going down now, but it's going down slowly. And, uh, you know, uh, many of their houses have been totally washed away. And I think it's very important that people, you know, recognize that, you know, the companies themselves who have been involved in building this dam, and there are some very large companies which have a lot of money and were planning to make a lot of money from this project. You know, they really need to take responsibility for these impacts and, uh, you know, pay for all the damages that have occurred. I mean, it's not going to be sufficient to make up for loss of life. You know, those things are, you know, you can't compensate for loss of life for people's family members you know, for the trauma that people have been through, but, you know, at least they have to do something. And uh, But it still remains to be seen to what extent the Lao government will, you know, force these companies to really uh, pay for these impacts, including the impacts in Cambodia that are now occurring, because there has never been a case in the past where uh, people who have built a dam in one country that has impacted another country have really paid for the impacts they've caused downstream. So... Uh, Downstream impacts are kind of an unappreciated uh, but certainly very important impact, and usually the downstream areas are considered to be outside of the project, Um, but they really should be considered to be part of it, you know, because a lot of, especially when it comes to things like fish migrations, because there are a lot of very important fish migrations that, the the fish that migrate very long distances, you know, and across national borders, and so if you build a dam and you block these fish migrations, you know, you can, have an impact on potentially a number of countries in in the Mekong basin.
0: Is there a politics involved here with this downwater uh issue cuz it's the Mekong River ends in Vietnam and Vietnam, you know, isn't on the best of terms with Cambodia or uh Laos or something and and do do all these countries and all these countries that are uh, China, Cambodia, Laos, they're they're not exactly Um, representative governments where where there's a lot of pushback on on these development projects is there kind of a weird political thing that helps the uh, that is helping foster this um, destruction of the mekong delta region
1: well actually there is because um the way that the mekong river commission which is the body that was set up through the mekong agreement is set up only uh, four countries, national governments, you know, the Vietnamese, Thai, Lao, and Cambodian governments are represented within the Mekong River Commission. So that means that only those governments officially have a say. And the problem is, is that all the governments would like to build hydropower dams. So they they don't want to necessarily overly criticize, you know, dams in other countries, even if those dams are likely to impact the people in their countries because they're concerned that that could lead to uh, other, you know, countries criticizing their dams and making it difficult for them to build them. So there's this kind of situation where the different countries don't necessarily want to criticize each other. But certainly Vietnam has been quite critical. They've been very concerned about the blocking of sediment by these dams, especially the mainstream dams, but also potentially the tributary dams. Because you know, without the, tri- the, the sediment going down the Mekong River into the delta, which is really the, they call it the rice bowl of Vietnam, where all the, the major agricultural production is, um, you know, that's going to degrade the delta and also the agricultural production in that part of the country. And so they are very concerned. I mean, they've built their own share of dams in Vietnam, um, and including in upstream areas, uh, in you know the Seysan River Basin or the Shreipok River Basin that have impacted downstream areas of Cambodia. But more recently, they've become very concerned about the upstream dams. And they actually have a very good relationship, generally speaking, with the Lao government. But this is basically the only issue in which they've come to loggerheads with the Lao government. Uh, the Lao government has insisted on, you know, building these projects uh, despite objections from Vietnam. Uh, but, you know, Vietnam doesn't necessarily want to overly uh, criticize Laos either because they have a close relationship. And they're also a bit afraid that the Lao government might move closer to China, which has been encouraging the Lao government to get involved in this this hydropower development, partially to divert criticism of China uh, from the downstream countries. Um, Because then once Laos is built down, it's it's harder for downstream countries to criticize China.
0: Well, it's um, an amazing transformation that's taking place there in the Mekong River Basin, and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks very much for joining us, Ian Baird, Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin Madison. He's an expert on Laos and the impact of dams there. Thanks a lot for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: After the break, we continue our World Without series and we'll talk about coffee. One expert says if we don't do something in the future, there will be less coffee. It will taste worse and cost more. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, our series, A World Without, is talking about the shortages that are happening in important staples of our lives. And we've already talked about water and soil earlier this week. Now let's tackle the favorite beverage of Americans, coffee. We're not exactly in danger of running out. But one researcher says that if we don't watch out, there's going to be less coffee in our future. It will taste worse and cost more. With me is Kim Elena Ionescu. She is the chief executive, uh, chief sustainability officer at the Specialty Coffee Association. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kim.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: Tell us what's going on with coffee. How can there be a threat to coffee? We all love it. We're drinking more of it. People are producing it all over the planet. What can go wrong?
2: Oh gosh, where to start? So, um, as you acknowledged earlier, there's a, a coffee shortage, and it's been reported by various media outlets. Especially this figure that you know by 2050 we could see a 50 percent decline in the amount of land suitable for coffee production. And what, I think that
0: what's wrong? What, what happened to the land?
2: Well, um, part of this, I mean, the, the easy answer here is climate change. The warming patterns are leading to, um, lower elevation coffee. So if you think about where coffee grows, it's mostly in tropical countries at elevations of, you know, about a thousand to two thousand meters or three to uh, six thousand feet, you know. So, um, as the climate warms, then, um, it's less, possible to grow coffee at those lower elevations. And if you think about the shape of a mountain, there's less land at the top than there is at the bottom.
0: So I saw a map of Ethiopia and the coffee growing regions today in Ethiopia, and then in what people expect in future years in 2050. And and it really did shrink enormously. And this is the birthplace of coffee, the place where coffee should really grow, right? I mean, this is the... This right. is the And
2: that's actually one of the countries, one of the few countries that stands to gain anything from uh, climate change. And it's not going to gain in the long, long term, but in the interim term, places that have more land at higher elevations, and those are places like Ethiopia and um, parts of South America, the Andes Mountains, they could see some increase in some regions of coffee production in places that have been too cold historically. But most of the world's coffee production is not at that level of, uh, of elevation. It's lower down. And so we're seeing a lot more threat than we are upside.
0: Am I crazy or is there more coffee being produced all the time? Because we're drinking more of it all the time and it seems like it's, it's getting to us.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been an explosion of, uh, of coffee in, in terms of coffee culture and coffee availability and maybe even the, um, the variety of coffees that we as average coffee drinkers have access to over the past decade or two, which is fantastic. And we see demand continuing to grow. So on the demand side, we're doing really well. Um, on the production side, less so. And there are still people who are, Getting into coffee farming, who didn't used to do it, who see economic opportunity there. Where um, but there is, are a where, lot more where is people that getting out of it.
0: What, what land um, is it that is that is producing this coffee?
2: Well, you know, if you look at who which countries produced coffee ten years ago or twenty years ago, then you'll see that there have always been a few countries that have produced the most. Brazil and Vietnam are um, are the front runners there, and then you've got Colombia and um, Mexico and Ethiopia and, and a few other countries in that group, but that top five percentage of global production has really really grown in the past two decades so whereas 20 years ago those top five produced about 55 percent of the world's coffee now they're producing 75 percent of the world's coffee so it's not um it's not that there's no coffee available or even necessarily that there's less of it but there's less diversity than there was and those trends are are likely to continue well
0: is where are they getting the land to produce more coffee Oh
2: well, that's a. I mean, that's a tricky question too, and it, it really depends from country to country, and even within a country from region to region. But um, if we go back to climate change and the shape of mountains, then um, there are many places where the land that will be suitable for coffee, or that is suitable now that wasn't a decade ago, was um, and is forested land. So some of this conversion, some of the the land that's now producing coffee, was converted from. Right. Other agricultural uses, but some of it's being converted from natural forest, and that has implications to even accelerate the effects of of climate change.
0: Okay, so there's deforestation going on to help us get more coffee now.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Should we feel bad about that? I mean, I, I don't feel good about this. I, there, there are <laughs> you know you see like little green labels and shade-grown coffee and all that. Uh, is that uh, doing anything is that helping
2: yeah well you know i have trouble being wildly optimistic but i also don't want to be completely cynical because i think that a lot of the the challenges that we face and the issues that we have we've had for a long time i mean if we think about coffee's legacy and and history it's not like there was a time where everything was done in this environmentally sustainable and socially responsible manner and we've um we've seen a collapse in that that ideal model it 's more like we know now what we didn't know before, so I think that we're in a better position to solve these problems or address these challenges collectively and individually than we ever have been so that gives me reason for optimism, but at the same time um you know we, we have to actually do something with the anxiety that we we feel about this, and that is on an individual level as consumers but it's also on the level of um of businesses and uh, and organizations and um, and even governments.
0: I'm talking with Kim Elena Ionescu, and she's with the Specialty Coffee Association, and we're talking about the future sustainability of coffee. When I opened the segment, I mentioned that um, there is going to be there could be less coffee in our future, and it will taste worse. Why will our coffee taste worse, possibly, in the future?
2: Well, I mean, I think that this also, I'll put the caveat in here that it depends, everything always depends on what you like. There's a lot about taste that's very subjective. But um as we see that consolidation happening in where coffee is produced, then one of the things that we lose is diversity. And um some of the, the nuances that come along with diversity, if you think about even if you're not a coffee drinker, if you think about diversity in varieties of apples or um, any other food that we consume, that's generally a good thing, not only from a flavor perspective, but also from a, a longevity perspective to have a lot of, um, of different genetic material to pull from. So when I say that it might taste worse in the future, it's because I think about the, the coffees and the flavors that we stand to lose as climate change makes certain growing regions untenable for coffee production. And as people in growing regions, even where it might be possible from a climatological perspective, don't see the the value in continuing to pursue it because it's not economically viable for them. Is it easier to
0: grow Robusta coffee than the better tasting variety of coffee? And is, is that something that would be in our future if we don't watch it?
2: Yes, as a person who's never actually farmed coffee, um, my understanding would be that yes, it is, uh, Robusta is hardier. Um, it will grow particularly at lower elevations than Arabica coffee would. And to most people, that is a less desirable flavor profile. But because it's more drought resistant and disease resistant, um, and it grows at lower elevations where there's more land, then yeah, that's a, uh, that's likely to be, part of more of our morning cups of coffee in the future than it has been for, say, the past few decades.
0: What about disease? Is disease a factor when it comes to climate change? It always seems like you know, it comes with some kind of disease.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's absolutely the case in coffee. So over the course of the past decade, we've seen the resurgence of a a disease that's actually been around in coffee for over a century now but a uh, uh, coffee rust um and outbreaks in Colombia in 2009 and in Central America in 2012 or 2013 have had um major ripple effects on um on coffee producers there and then elsewhere as well um uh, in fact you know some of the Uh, migration patterns that we've seen from Central America can be traced to this outbreak of coffee rust and uh, lower volumes being exported and, you know, less economic activity being generated for coffee producers, but also farm workers in those areas who might have lacked for work and and alternatives so it's one of those examples of how climate change does impact plants and it's got environmental implications but it's also got social and economic implications and um and vice versa you know social and um economic factors can sort of accelerate the effects of of climate change It sounds like if
0: rust has been around for a while, people really don't know how to get rid of it, (laughs) and we won't be getting rid of it anytime soon.
2: Well, this is where um, research, and and I talked about genetic diversity in terms of apples earlier and and having taste benefits and also genetic benefits, Um, and this is one area where developing more rust-resistant varieties of coffee would certainly be in the interest of the the industry and and anyone who loves coffee because there are many different strains of coffee rust so while um you know while we call it rust it it's a different strain that affects plants at different times and we can work to develop varieties of coffee that are resistant to a particular strain of rust. But over time, you know, rust is smart. These, these diseases will evolve and they will find weaknesses and, um, and we'll have to keep up the research and the investment in developing new varieties that are resistant to the new strains.
0: What is the coffee industry doing about all these threats? Uh, do they have a strategy?
2: Yeah, well, you know, one group that I can't help but mention, especially in the context of genetic diversity, is World Coffee Research, which is a collaborative industry-led effort to address this lack of genetic diversity in coffee and plan for the future, developing new varieties, understanding which kinds of coffee work well, where, um, uh, trying to ad- get out in front of some of the, the challenges that we know not only are we going to face, but that we're already facing. What
0: about the big industry players? Do they want to work with growers to make a better uh, future for coffee? Because it sounds like, it, you know, it's not good for the industry if you're moving coffee production around and chasing altitudes and different land and deforesting things. This is not where you get a sustainable product. You, you want something different.
2: No, that's certainly how I feel. I don't want to mimic uh, the industries that move around chasing low-cost labor. Um, uh, and that's a difficult thing to do in agriculture, even if it was a good economic strategy. So, and I, And I do think that, to your question, yes, that even the big industry players do want to address these issues, do want to work with growers, do want to find a way to sustain coffee. Um, I think the the question though isn't whether there's the the will but how and um and at what cost and who leads that and who funds that and um and how do we involve consumers and governments as I said before industry definitely has a a role here and maybe even in many cases a, a responsibility or a, a an obligation to lead but in other in other instances, it may actually be the role of um of the public sector or the role of civil society to take a, a leadership role and, um, and set some terms for industry. So there's a balance. So
0: in the case, I know in Vietnam, they went from having no coffee production to a ton of coffee production. And it wasn't exactly industry that was driving it. I believe it was like the public policy people and government that, that drove their uh, insertion into the coffee industry.
2: Yeah, you know, the, without getting too deep into the specifics, there was a set of agreements around how much coffee different countries could produce that, um, that collapsed. And upon the collapse, one of the, um, the effects was that countries that had previously not produced coffee, uh, they didn't have a a quota, they didn't, weren't part of these agreements, began to produce coffee. And Vietnam is the, um, you know, by far the, uh the largest volume example of that new planting of coffee and also largely robusta coffee which is more productive at lower elevations and and all of the uh, has all those attributes that I I mentioned earlier so um the growth of that and then the um yeah the the growth of the Vietnamese coffee sector was largely a result of policy decisions but industry so encouraged that and benefited from that as well. So um, I think that it's, a, it's hard to extricate one actor from another.
0: Uh, do you think something like the old coffee agreement would be a good thing in the future, the, where you manage the um the grow, where where it's growing and how much it's growing and what who's buying what and guarantee prices is that something would that lend an element of stability that would be an effective way to manage our coffee future
2: you know, I was at a conference last year around this time in Colombia organized by a group called the World Coffee Producer Forum. And I heard that call from a few different coffee producers in the audience saying, you know, we want to bring back the international coffee agreements and set quotas because then at least we'll know what the price will be and we'll know that it will be sustainable for us. And we can make these decisions without being, um, you know, at the, at the whim of a market that has nothing to do with our realities and our production costs. And so, I, I hear that need for stability and I hear that need for, you know, for some ability to to plan and, and an understanding by the market of what the costs are of producing coffee and how much those have changed since the, you know, the collapse of those agreements or since, um you know, 40 years ago when the coffee price was about the same as it is today. So I hear all of those things, but I don't think that the answer is to bring back a, a quota system and to bring back coffee agreements that dictate who can produce how much because there were many you know instances of cheating uh with that system also so there was coffee hoarding and all sorts of problems that went along with it it wasn't all just uh, it wasn't like everyone was happy with it at the time
0: uh you are ultimately optimistic though about coffee's future
2: well, yeah, I mean, first of all, because I love it, and like so many people who drink coffee um, it 's this really beautiful and important part of my day, and so you know I feel like um, a more hopeful person when I drink coffee, and I feel like i am uh, i 'm hopeful for coffee 's future because I know that so many other people feel this way too i 'm um, hopeful because I see more happening every day, and I see this mostly from the industry side, but You know, just because our problems are big and daunting doesn't mean that we can't address them. And I said earlier that I I don't feel like things have ever been particularly better than they are now, Um, especially when we think about, uh, like I've talked about farm labor a couple of times, when we think about how how farm labor is compensated or how um, growers have access to information. I mean, that's, you know, what we have now would have been unthinkable. 30 years ago so I feel like there I see these signs um, it's just a matter of you know how quickly can we move from anxiety to to action
0: Kim Elena Ionescu is the Chief Sustainability Officer at the Specialty Coffee, coffee Association thanks for joining us and talking about the future of coffee
2: thanks so much for having me Wild winter, warm coffee
1: Mom's gone, do he love me? Blazing summer, cold coffee, baby's gone, do he love me? Grab me in your arms.
0: After the break, we'll move on from shortages of a staple of our mornings to shortages of a staple of our health care. We will think through the effect of a shortage in antimicrobials. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One thing you don't want to run out of is antibiotics, but shortages are more common than you would think. We're going to continue our series, A World Without, and talk with Dr. Donald Graham. He's the author of the study, Antimicrobial Agent Shortages, the New Norm for Infectious Disease Physicians. He's an internist at the Springfield Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Donald Graham.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, tell us about your uh, study here. Why did you want to get out there and, and you, you basically asked physicians if they are running out of antibiotics when they prescribe them? And you got some surprising results. Well,
3: this study was an outgrowth of a number of conversations that specialists in infectious diseases have had with their patients, with their referring physicians, and with the other physicians, not only in their cities but throughout the country and the world, And what we would find would be that uh, a prescription for an antibiotic would be written because that was the right antibiotic to give, and the pharmacy would call and say, we have four doses left, or we have uh, enough for two days, or we have no more left. Can you give us some alternative prescription? And this began to happen with uh, distressing frequency. It first started to happen in the 1990s, and, in fact, a group called the Emerging Infections Network which was uh, an outgrowth of the CDC uh, investigations, conducted an interview and reported a study in 1999 showing that quite a few antibiotics were in short supply. Uh, There was some hope that just publicizing this problem would be enough to cure the problem, but it really wasn't. So there were two more investigations uh, with uh, large surveys of practitioners of infectious diseases throughout the country, uh, one was in uh, 2011 and another one in 2016. And what was discovered was that the problem continues. There are some changes in the individual agents that are in short supply. But overall, uh, we do face shortages all of the time. And and that's what uh, we tried to bring to the attention of the larger audience.
0: And can you give us a number on that? How often are doctors saying, you know, your study... Um, talked about how many doctors in over a certain period of time had faced a shortage, and it was a surprising number.
3: Well, really, uh, everyone at some time or another faces a shortage, and this actually is not limited to infectious diseases. Uh, We've recently seen, for example, we've had shortages of intravenous fluids, such as uh, normal saline, which is just salt water, but it's, of course, sterile salt water that's delivered in a medical grade, but even that has been in short supply, Uh, Some of the uh, blood pressure medications and the heart medications have been in short supply. Uh, Really, it's affected every doctor at uh, at some time uh, during uh, the year. Uh, I would say in the the field of infectious diseases, however, uh, it's a consideration that's almost weekly that we run into uh, the need to uh, offer an alternative to what we might have selected.
0: Well, why don't drug companies produce more and distribute it better
3: the drug companies certainly are aware of of the problem and I think there are many reasons that uh, they don't it's not necessarily that they don't want to do that but you have to realize that the manufacturing process is very complex to make penicillin for example took uh, eons and centuries before we had our first dose Uh, it wasn't until the uh, uh, 1940s that we really made it in large scale and so the, uh, when you look at how difficult it is, uh, there, are, there are many standards of manufacture. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration and the companies themselves have their own standards that they try to apply, and they become increasingly strict. Uh, those uh, standards include purity and uh, concentration of the medication to be sure that when you say you have one milligram of something that you really do have one milligram of something. Uh, There are capsules that have to be uh, formulated with uh, uh, stabilizers in the capsule. Uh, There are uh, uh, intravenous uh, concentrations that are made uh, that sometimes uh, become uh, inactive over time. But I think one of the big factors has been uh, the the fact that we have a lot of infections, and we uh, have to treat a lot of infections, and we're just finding that uh, Uh, Sometimes the uh, demand exceeds the
0: supply. Is the demand going way up because physicians all over the world want access to these drugs, whereas maybe they didn't have it before?
3: Well, I think uh, the, uh, the industrialized world at one point was the major consumer of antibiotics, In fact, we find that around the world, uh, everybody can prescribe antibiotics, and most of them are available. There are some of the very new antibiotics that are not available, and curiously, the brand new ones, we usually don't have much trouble acquiring. It's the older ones, like penicillin and uh, gentamicin and uh, cefotaxime. Those are mainstay antibiotics that are used really every day in every hospital, and sometimes they are not available.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Donald Graham. He's author of the study Antimicrobial Agent Shortages, the New Norm for Infectious Disease Physicians. We're talking about the shortages that doctors face of uh, antibiotics and antimicrobials. Um, Is there um, something about uh, the the natural disasters that drives up demand? I was reading uh, something about... Uh, Puerto Rico and other things, are there strange demand occurrences? Uh,
3: actually, that was a supply problem. And in, in Puerto Rico, when the, uh, I think it was Hurricane Maria hit last year, uh, it uh, had this uh, remarkable uh, attack at this manufacturing center for several pharmaceutical companies. Puerto Rico for years has uh, attracted uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing companies Because of, uh, I guess, climate and uh, tax benefits and uh, uh, perhaps a lot of reasons. But unfortunately, when the hurricane hit, it knocked out some uh, factories. It also interrupted water supply and interrupted electrical communication and electrical supplies for these factories. And then that result was the production uh, dropped sharply. Uh, that affected, I mentioned the uh, intravenous fluids, uh, that was a big problem, but it also affected the production of antibiotics, and that was a major source of, uh, of our production for the United States. And now, it takes a long time to put them back online uh, with the reconstruction of the factory and also the, the hooking up of the uh, uh, water and the electrical systems and the computer lines uh, that are so important. So that was a supply problem. Uh, We've also had some supply problems with some of the companies that made generic medications. Uh, The patents in this field last uh, uh, usually uh, 17 years. There's been some uh, extension of patents in the last several years to 20 and sometimes a little bit longer, uh, 20 years or a little bit longer. But uh, eventually uh, products like penicillin, for example, uh, become generic well, the uh, the cost of production is pretty much the same now as it was 20 and 30 years ago, but the selling price has dropped because of competition, and that has caused some of the uh, generic manufacturers to decide that uh, the profit isn't there and it's not uh, worth their while to make it. Uh, in addition, the FDA has strengthened the standards in these factories to be sure that uh, there's no contamination, that the airflow is is very pure, that the workers are uh, clean and they go into a, uh, like a spacesuit sometimes to to uh, for their manufacturing activities. All of that, of course, takes money. And uh, uh, some companies have not been willing or able to spend the extra money when they wouldn't make anything for it.
0: Now, it sounds like most patients probably don't recognize that there is a shortage of antibiotics and sometimes they may have to order another, but they, um, what does it mean for patient care when, it co- when the rubber meets the road?
3: Well, that's an important question. The uh, patients sometimes have to take an antibiotic that is broader than they might have ordinarily received. For example, with penicillin, when you're just treating uh, streptococcus or you're treating uh, for to try to prevent a, an infection relating to delivery. Uh, penicillin usually is quite fine. However, if you have to take something broader, you run into several potential problems. Uh, one is just the extra cost. But uh, to the patient, uh, you, you find that you're giving a broader antibiotic than you need, and then the result is you're going to kill some of the good bacteria that you wouldn't ordinarily have killed because you had to give this very broad antibiotic. Uh, then you also run the risk of uh, an allergy because you're exposing them to a different antibiotic that they wouldn't have taken previously. And you have the, the problem of uh, you're killing some of the uh, good bacteria. And then if later on the patient develops an infection, then he or she is likely to have an infection that would be resistant to our standard antibiotics. So then you have to up the ante of the therapy and give an even broader uh, course of therapy.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, it sounds like this is something that is fixable if, you know, we could pull it all together and pull it off. Is there some way to get get a fix of this done? Uh,
3: it's uh, There are some uh, attempts. Uh, one has been the purchasing of antibiotics. There's been some hoarding. Some uh, uh, distributors, some hospitals know that something might be in short supply, so they buy much more than they need because they want to keep a year's supply. Well, if too many of these uh, purchasers do that, that throws the uh, supply chain uh, kind of in disarray. Uh, One area, and I'm not sure that the general public would go for it, would be to relax some of our manufacturing standards and to allow more companies in the U.S. or to allow companies outside the United States to come in and distribute their products. Uh, We've had for years, for more than 100 years, we've had the Food and Drug Administration, which was a creation of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's administration, uh, to help ensure pure food and drugs in our supply. Uh, Every product that comes into the United States has to be certified by the Food and Drug Administration, and uh, that would be true even if something came in from England or came in from China. Everything has to be approved. That takes time. Uh, That could be done. There could be some relaxation of the standards or some re-evaluation of some of those that aren't necessarily as important to the purity of our products, but uh, all of that will take some uh, time and a lot of effort to do.
0: Dr. Donald Graham is author of the study Antimicrobial Agent Shortages, the New Norm for Infectious Disease Physicians. He's an internist at the Springfield Clinic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about shortages of antimicrobials and how it affects uh, the people in our audience. Thanks a lot for joining us.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll conclude our series on uh, shortages and uh, our world without, and we'll talk about the shortages in um, data storage ability. So stay tuned for that. We'll go from uh, very earthy things like water and soil to data storage at the end of the week. So I hope you can join us for our conclusion of A World Without. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Amber Fisher. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.